0: Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. We need to uh, re- recognize that we as believers, as Christians, we sin, we sin a lot more than we think we do, and so it's always necessary for us to keep short accounts and to confess sin if necessary. Sin is a barrier to our relationship with the Lord when we are before we were believers, we were spiritually dead. When we are believers, sin does not take away our salvation. It does not make us spiritually dead, but it does separate us in terms of our uh, spiritual function from God. We're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the flesh, and so we need to confess sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you have the opportunity to confess sin if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time that we have together to come together to study your word, whether it is physically, face-to-face, or through the the internet. Father, we pray for our nation during this time that you would give wisdom to doctors, give wisdom to those who have influence to properly understand the extent of this virus and the problem and what must be done in order to address it, and also, most importantly, to address the economy. Father, we pray for wisdom for our president. We pray for those around him who can advise him accurately and objectively. And, Father, we pray that on the part of all who are leading the humility to admit that they are wrong and to continue to learn and study and make right decisions. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might stand fast and stand firm, trusting in you, and that we will not be overwhelmed in any way by the circumstances of this uh, uh, quarantine and uh, stay-at-home orders that we know we grow wet restless we know we grow impatient we uh, are, seem to be locked down and under ho- house arrest and it's worse in some states than in others and father we just pray that we may learn to relax and understand the biblical principles of submission to authority submission to leadership even when we uh, radically disagree with those those leaders. And Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you might impress upon our souls the importance of understanding your grace and being oriented to your grace and not oriented to arrogance. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16. Second Samuel chapter 16, while you're turning in your Bibles, two quick announcements one is that on Monday evenings now, Camp Rete will be hosting a virtual Bible study. They are doing this, and then later in the summer, they're going to have a one-week online Bible study because they have had to cancel the camp for this summer due to the situation uh, with the coronavirus. And uh, so on Monday nights until then, and probably after that, they are hosting a Bible class uh, for those who are... Uh, available and interested and i think some schools out a lot of people are available right now so if you want information on that you can go to the Campa Rete website and you can get the appropriate information the second announcement is that here in the state of texas uh, governor abbott uh, is beginning to open up uh, the state Uh, various businesses are going to begin slowly to reopen and, as part of that, because churches have never been closed, churches can then expand what they are uh, what they are doing for West Houston Bible Church, we want to take it slow and easy. I sent out an email today if you did not get the email, you can uh, go to the website. There should be an announcement posted on the website with the information. but we're going to uh, go ahead and resume attendance, but we are encouraging all of those who are uh in the vulnerable age range and have have certain uh, health vulnerabilities we 're going to continue we 're not going to tell you to stay home that 's up to you, but we 'll encourage you uh, to stay home. We love you, and we want you to be around for a while and not get uh, out where you can get um, get 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 infected with this virus and uh, have serious health problems so but we, we won't start prep school or the nursery for another two two or three weeks until we get into what the governor has called phase two. So we won't be. We will have the kitchen open, won't have coffee, won't have things like that. But, but everybody can begin to uh, come back and be part of the church. We'll practice social distancing, things like that. That will begin uh, this coming Sunday, the first Sunday in May. All right, we have been studying in... Samuel in Second Samuel, and we're in the midst of five chapters that deal with the the Absalom rebellion. Now, in my opinion, this is one of the darkest periods in history, and I haven't talked to too many people who really enjoy reading it or really enjoy studying it, or are going through it. It is a, a difficult difficult section, and uh, I know I don't particularly care going through it, but God, the Holy Spirit, thought it was important for us. Obviously, he spent so much time talking about it. There are very few things that we we see in Scripture where you have so much time and so many verses devoted to an, an episode of this nature. So that tells us that from the vantage point of God the Holy Spirit, this is important. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness— and that includes all of the passages that we think are boring and that we think uh, aren't that important and that we just need to spend a little more time studying them and coming uh, coming to understand them now as we go through this section i've broken it down it's basically four parts we see the f- absalom fleeing that's back in chapters uh, 14 and and then in 15 he returns and begins to foment a rebellion. He gets his conspiracy going, and any time we see people get involved in a conspiracy, it always involves arrogance, and it always involves a, a, a reaction to the ultimately to the authority uh, of God. It is always hostility to God's plan and purpose. Whenever people get involved in uh, some sort of conspiracy to overthrow a legitimate authority. Uh, Absalom then returns, foments that, and as a result of that, when he comes into Jerusalem, then David flees. And David flees, we're in the midst of that, going through uh, this section down to chapter 16, verse 4. It will continue as we look at Absalom, and then back and forth until we come to chapter 18, when we have the death of of, uh, Absalom. And it's not until uh, the latter part of Chapter Nineteen that David returns to Jerusalem, so that just gives you a broad broad understanding, so it starts really in in uh, fourteen with Absalom fleeing, but the conspiracy itself starts in fifteen and goes through nineteen. Last time, I said this is somewhat like any drama you've seen in a in a film or in a television show where you see the scene shifts. A lot of times when people are reading the Bible, they get confused because they don't read it like a drama, especially the historical narratives and there there are scene shifts there's in especially when you're looking at Hebrew narrative there'll be a chapter sometimes like Genesis one that gives you a big, broad overview, and then the next chapter comes back and drills down into one particular day in the case of genesis two and and that's pretty standard in the way uh the Hebrews would tell a story uh, We don't have that here, but it's a long narrative, so Absalom begins the revolt in chapter fifteen verses 1 through 13, and then David hears about this and flees Jerusalem. Now, we studied this uh, in the previous lesson, which was actually back uh, at the very beginning of February, and then we've had a number of interruptions, so we didn't get back to it until last week, so last time I gave a lot of review of, of this section, but David hears about it, and he flees Jerusalem, and this is the section we're still studying tonight, 15 14 through 16, 14. And then uh, we see at the same time, Absalom is entering Jerusalem. This is mentioned in chapter 15, but then it is clearly stated when you get to chapter 16, verse 15. Meanwhile, that's an important word. Meanwhile, at the same time that, that David is fleeing and he has this episode with Ziva and then with Shemai. At that same time, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, come into Jerusalem. Now, think about this, because we look at this chapter; it's five chapters, and we think about an, this Absalom revolt. And just think in your in your head, how long do you think this Absalom revolt took? What what what's the timeline here? I don't think the timeline's very very long. We have him down in Hebron. Uh, gathering his people together. And then when he heads north to Jerusalem, which is only about 15 miles, we think of Israel as being so big, but it's very, very small. So he's got to go 15 miles. That's like from where we are here in Houston over to approximately um, Meyerland Shopping Center over there around Beechnut Nut and 610. That's about 15 miles. That's not very far. But in Israel, because you're going through the hill country of Judah, it seems like uh, it's much further than that. And of course, in modern times, you've got to go through a couple of checkpoints and things of that nature uh, in between, but it's not that far. So it doesn't take uh, Absalom and his men to get very far. And so when David hears about it, he starts gathering everybody together. They have to pack their bags very quickly and come out of Jerusalem, and they're leaving. And as as uh, Absalom is coming from the south, David is heading out along the Kidron Valley and heading heading north. And all of this is probably taking place within a day or two at the very most. And then we see all this episode down through Uh, down through chapter 16, I think, is all taking place within a day. And then probably the whole situation where uh, Absalom is going to uh, take over David's uh, concubines, that probably takes another uh, day or two. So by the time we get into uh, the end of chapter 17, uh, only only three or four days at the most has transpired, and then we have the, the uh, David going down uh, the descent here because it's going down, it's ascent of Adamim if you're going up from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And if you're going down, it's 14 miles to the Jordan River, 14, 15 miles, and you're crossing the Jordan River. So that doesn't take David that long to get all of his people across the Jordan River. So this whole time span is pretty short. And then when... Uh, Absalom gets his troops together he has to to gather them and in uh chapter uh 17 verse 26 are going back to 24 David goes through Mahanaim which is somewhere on the on the uh Jordan side and he crosses over the Jordan and all the men of Israel with him and then uh, Absalom is is going to follow him and then in verse 27 we we see um, or in verse twenty six rather Absalom encamps in the land of Gilead, so by this time they're they're gathering on the other side of the Jordan, and there 's going to be a battle. Maybe a month goes by i don 't think this really transpires over a huge amount of time, a month or less before david's going to be back back in his palace in in Jerusalem. So we see Absalom going into Jerusalem, 1615 to 1714. We see Hushai, remember him, he's David's friend. A couple of times it's mentioned that he's a friend of David, and he um, he goes undercover as a mole in uh, Absalom's administration. And then he is going to uh, subvert Ahithophel, the very wise counselor who is who has gone over to, uh, gone over to Absalom, and he every word we're told that he says is as if it's from the mouth of God, and so Hushai is going to subvert his his wise counsel, and then he'll get word through the communication chain through the sons of Zadok and Abiathar, he's going to inform David. Uh, of, of what's going on, then Absalom moves against David. That's from Second Samuel seventeen verses twenty four uh, through twenty six, which I just alluded to, and then David moves across the Jordan, starting in v- about verse twenty seven uh, when he crosses over, and then he is resupplied down through eighteen five, and then the battles fought and that fought, and Absalom is killed, and that's through most of chapter. Uh, Chapter 18 leading up to 19 and then the after effects of the, the revolt. What we see here in this scene shifting is a character analysis going on, a character comparison. Because what we see here is first it's Absalom, then it's David, then it's Absalom, then it's David, then it's Absalom, then it's David. And when you see something like that going on in Scripture, the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to the contrast between David between David and Absalom. Remember that the Holy Spirit isn't just telling us history. He's giving us a, you know, God's interpretation of that history. And so the focus here is ultimately on the spiritual lesson. And so there is something that is being illustrated here in terms of spiritual uh, maturity on David's part, and in terms of arrogance and hostility toward God on Absalom's part. So we have a character study uh, by way of contrast. And so what we see here is how um, Absalom is a case study in arrogance. And so on the left side, I developed this last Thursday night for our study in the spiritual skills, but it works very well here I changed the title a little bit. You have those who are politicians and leaders, whether they're in business, whether they're in government, uh, whatever area they may be in sports, they may be in education, they're in every walk of life, and they focus and operate on pure human viewpoint solutions. And remember, human viewpoint is always based on arrogance and hostility toward God. Human viewpoint is really demonic viewpoint. Demonic viewpoint is described through the term cosmos or the world system in the New Testament. It is all the philosophies, all the religions, everything that is hostile and antagonistic to the Word of God. The Word of God represents one consistent viewpoint from Genesis to Revelation. There are 66 books. Written the earliest book I think was Joe, probably written about the time of Abraham, or Isaac rather, uh, early second millennium B.C. So we're talking about eighteen, nineteen hundred B.C. And then the last one written is uh, the Book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, written by uh, John the Apostle, approximately ninety-three. AD. So that covers a period of 2,000 years. And over this period of 2,000 years, you had more than 40 different writers of Scripture, and they all speak from the same viewpoint. They talk about the most controversial issues that people have ever discussed in all of human history, everything from politics, law, romance, uh, family, marriage, the purpose and meaning of life, Things that people fight over, argue over all the time and never agree on. And yet here you have these authors over a spread of 2,000 years who represent one consistent, non-contradictory approach to life. That is the divine viewpoint. And what we need to learn in our spiritual life and spiritual growth is God's viewpoint, that viewpoint of Scripture so that we can think that way. And divine viewpoint is always based on grace and humility. And the other hand, divine Uh, human viewpoint is always based on arrogance it's always based on the pride of man the arrogance of man which always leads to a fall so the origin of human viewpoint is the sin nature it actually technically would have originated with an angelic sin nature that developed in satan when he fell according to isaiah chapter 12 uh or excuse me Isaiah 14:12 to 14 and also in Ezekiel 28 uh 12 to 19 that represents the fall of Satan driven by his five-eye wills which are, uh describe his his arrogance Satan thought he had a better way than God and so Proverbs 14:12 comes along and says there is a way that seems right to a man but the end thereof is death And so human beings often think they have a better way than God's way, and it always ends up in death. It will end up in eternal death if they don't accept God's grace solution at the cross, and it will end up in living a death-like existence if they reject the Word of God, even if they are believers. The divine solution is based on the Word of God, And Psalm 119.50 represents this. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. And so we have to understand that the foundation for the divine viewpoint in life is on humility. It is on understanding the grace of God and making that the pattern, the blueprint, the framework for our thinking and for our our lives. And so that's what we see when we come to the last of these tests that David faces, which is the test of Shemai starting in 165. But what I want to cover before we get into that is a summary of what the Bible teaches about grace orientation. We talked about this some when we were doing a survey last Thursday and this coming Thursday on the spiritual skills but grace orientation is really rather complex. Most people probably can't sit down and tell you what does it mean to orient your life to the grace of God. But this com- is comprised of several, several aspects and several elements, all of which are necessary in order to go forward in our spiritual life. And they all run counter to arrogance and self-absorption. So first of all, let's just get a definition of grace orientation. What does it mean? Grace means unearned favor or unmerited kindness. That's a basic understanding of, of grace. It's goodness, it's kindness to people, to one and all, and whether they deserve it or not. But the grace that we talk about in Scripture. One of the aspects we've recently learned in our study of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is that grace isn't just God's goodness to people. It is God's goodness to those who deserve just the opposite. It is that God gives us all of these blessings, all of these privileges. He gives us all of these benefits. And when we deserve the absolute worst, we deserve the most horrendous punishment we deserve the greatest condemnation, we deserve nothing at all, yet God has richly blessed us. That's what grace means. So grace is foundational to understanding love, because love for us is is not what we think of, uh, what you read about perhaps in some novels, what you may see on television shows or in films or even what you might have experienced in life. The Bible talks about love in a very special way and the example of God's love is seen in John 3.16 which says that God loved us in such a way that he gave, he gave his only son, his unique son, his His monogenes, one-of-a-kind son, the God-man, to enter into human history, to take on human, human flesh, and to go to the cross to die for us. And in that act of his, of his death, he would become sin for us. He would become so identified legally with our sin that the Scripture describes it as he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Now, he wasn't made sinful, but he was made sin. And so that he took in his own body on the cross, scripture says, he took our sin upon him and paid that sin penalty. That's the example of love. Romans 5, 8 says the same kind of thing, but God demonstrates his love for us. So this gives us an example, a picture, a portrait of what love means, whether it's love for a friend, whether it's romantic love, uh, whatever kind of love you're talking about, the example of what that should entail is, is from the cross. And so grace is the application of God's love to creatures who are not deserving of his love at all. And grace flows from the character of the one who loves. When we apply it to human beings, grace flows from the character of the one who loves and is not based on the actions, attitudes, or personality of the object. So when people treat us in a wrong way or a way that makes us angry, a way that offends us, a way that uh, irritates us or insults us, rather than reacting and responding in anger and resentment, hostility or vengeance, we are instead to return kindness to them. Now, that doesn't mean that we let them take advantage of us but it means that we are not going to respond on the basis of our sin nature. Uh, We can see this also in God's plan and purpose. When God is going to have somebody who has taken advantage of him and disobeyed him and violated his word, God brings consequences into their life. And we talk about that as divine discipline or divine judgment. But it is still part of grace because God is doing what is best for the object of his love. And sometimes what is best for the object of love is discipline in order to teach and to train. This is what we find uh, find with parents. And so grace, though, understanding grace and orienting ourselves to grace is crucial to advance in the spiritual life. Later on in the spiritual life, we develop our impersonal love for all mankind, where we're able to respond in forgiveness and love to those who don't deserve it. A uh, person can't truly love if they're self-absorbed and dominated by arrogance. And today we have so many people who are so self-absorbed and arrogant, and that's one reason we have such a high divorce rate, is because two people who are self-absorbed cannot live together in a marriage and truly love each other, which means to be selfless if they are selfish. And so this this violates the whole principle of love uh, biblical love in marriage so grace is a foundation now the second thing we learn about grace is that grace is treated as a skill in scripture for example you have passages like 2nd timothy 2 1 where timothy says you therefore are or, or paul says excuse me paul says to timothy you therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in christ jesus Now, isn't that an odd way to talk about grace? I remember when I was in my first year at seminary and I was at some uh, social gathering of of other students and seminary students always like to uh, talk about the uh, things that they've come up with in some insight and you often find a certain amount of academic arrogance. But it's part of that growth process and the learning process. And so this guy was talking about Grace And he said, "You know grace is a weird thing to, to, um, to try to define, because some places it's an action, some place it's a thought, some place it's a power, and, uh, and, and it's all three. And he, he made a good point, but where he was going with it was was out of bounds. but anyway, uh, that's what you see here is we're to be strong in grace when we have a gracious mentality. That gives us a certain power and ability in life. It takes grace orientation to deal with the tests that come from people. When people disappoint us, when people uh, make us angry, when people do things that hurt us and that uh, cause uh, an emotional response in us that is sinful— Uh, we have to be able to rise above it. And so that only comes when we are grace-oriented. And we need to develop that blueprint in our soul where we're going to respond as Christ responded. Uh, And that is exemplified on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Uh, this doesn't mean that they're getting off scot-free it is that he is doing something that has universal significance in paying for the sins of everyone and their role in this as horrible as it was uh was one that they did not have any idea about they had no comprehension of of what they were doing was it wrong yes did it violate roman law and jewish law yes it did but it, and so Christ says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That is grace, and we have to learn to adopt that mentality. Otherwise, we let people's actions, their sinful actions towards us, their hostility, their, um, their, their disloyalty to us, all of those things dictate our mental attitude. And then we be, you basically become a slave to somebody else when they have done things to you and you spend time thinking about it and how you're going to respond, how you're going to react. You've suddenly said, you're going to control my time and my energy and my life for however long you let that happen. So we have to learn to use grace to get beyond that. That means it's a skill. It's something we have to practice, something we have to... Develop is that grace orientation. We see it again in Second Peter three eighteen. But grow, that's a command, in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is a an instrumental use of the um, preposition here that we grow by means of grace. So we have to learn about grace. We have to think about grace. We have to meditate on grace. We have to think about how grace applies to the different decisions that we make in life. And are we following a grace blueprint? Are we aligning our lives, our thinking, to understanding the grace of God and implementing it in all of these different, different areas? Skills take time to develop. they take practice it 's not always easy if whether you 're talking about something uh, let 's say you 're talking about dance you 're talking about a, a something that is artistic, something is beautiful, but when you go to a ballet or you go to some other kind of dance performance and you watch something beautiful, you watch ice dancing at the olympics uh, that didn 't just happen overnight that took. Thousands, tens of thousands of hours of practice through years and years and years of getting up early, of following certain regimens of discipline, diet, exercise, all kinds of things in order to achieve achieve that perfection. And so that's what it is for us as believers. We have to practice in all the little ways and all the little problems and conflicts we have in life. We have to practice grace orientation just like we do practicing confession. Some of you are really good at practicing confession, but you don't get so good after you go past that. Claiming promises, memorizing promises, it's just practice, practice, practice in order to develop uh, develop those skills. And I used to have a, a, a friend years ago would say, well, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. So we have to practice it as the scripture says and understand it and do it again and again and again. Do we fail a lot? You bet we do. Every one of us over and over and over again, just like any athlete has failed again and again. And again, many, many times, Just I don't remember the numbers now, but it's amazing. I used to hear this from a sales manager, how many times uh, Babe Ruth struck out. Uh, he was a home-run king, but he struck out thousands and thousands of times. And And that's what happens in the growth process. To become good at something, then we have to learn from mistakes and learn from failures. So notice also in this verse the connection between grace and knowledge. And that's one of the things we're going to see in this study of grace is that grace involves teachability. You have to learn things as well in the process. That's part of grace orientation. So we're to grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now a third point One that we saw last Thursday night is that grace orientation builds on the faith rest drill, and it's then essential for the next building block, which is doctrinal orientation. Now, for a long time, you may wonder, well, what's the connection between the two? Well, grace orientation involves teachability. To get to doctrinal orientation or orienting our thinking to what the Bible teaches, we have to have teachability first. You have to have that humility, authority, orientation to learn the Word of God, to apply the Word of God. So grace orientation has to precede doctrinal orientation because without teachability from grace orientation, you're not going to learn a whole lot. So grace orientation builds on the faith rest drill. Faith rest drill is where we take the promises of God and we rest on them. So when the promises of God teach about learning and studying and not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind, then we just believe it and we have to act on it. That's the faith rest drill. Then we develop, as we go along, our grace orientation, and then we develop uh, an orientation to what the Bible teaches. Now, all of this transpired in the life of David. To do this doesn't mean you don't fail. You can fail dramatically, you can fail uh, incredibly, you, you, you can fail uh, in, in ways that, that you're embarrassed about for the rest of your life, and that's what happened to David. But David began to learn about the faith rest drill when he's out with the sheep. We don't know when David became a believer, but it was probably when he was fairly young. And he loved the Lord. He would read and memorize the scriptures that uh, were available to him and the promises of God. And he loved to compose uh, songs and lyrics. And he probably began to do that when he was uh, young and when he was out with the sheep. And so he's meditating on God's word. He's learning about God. And so he's developing faith rest drill. Now, how do we know that? What's an episode that you can think of where we know that David was learning to trust God? When David got to the point where he had to face Goliath, and Saul came up and said, You're just some some kid. You're untrained. You're unskilled. You're not a warrior. Now, David, I think, was fairly uh, developed adolescent at this time, probably 17, 18 years of age. And because of what he had done out with the sheep and everything, he's developed... Strength And he says, well, I, I've never fought a soldier in combat, but whenever, whenever and, and in the, the Hebrew, it's this, it, he's talking in a way that expresses something that characteristically happened, something that happened on it regularly. And that whenever the sheep were attacked by lions or bears, David says, I would go and I would grab the lion by his beard and I would take my, my rod, my staff, and I would kill them. He didn't have any other weapons than that. He's killing lions barehanded. He was tough. What gave him that mental toughness? It was the Word of God, and he learned to trust God in the performance of his daily responsibilities. And and whatever your responsibilities are, maybe it's as a parent, a mother, a father— Maybe it 's your responsibilities as a teacher, maybe your responsibilities as a as a secretary, as an administrator, as the head of a company, as a doctor, dentist, whatever your field of 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 life's work is. That is the area where you trust God in the midst of that situation and to handle all, this, all the circumstances, and that's what David did. So grace orientation is necessary to truly be successful in the spiritual life, and that spills over into every other area of, of life. Now to the fourth, fourth point, thinking through what are the elements in grace orientation. David is exhibiting grace orientation in contrast to Absalom. Absalom is the poster child for arrogance. Anyone who's involved in rebellion against a king, a government, is a poster child for for arrogance. And we're going to come to understand that a little more in just a little bit. Uh, Grace is first mentioned in Scripture in Genesis 6, 8. The Hebrew word is hen, hen, uh, it's a rough, a ch C-H-E-N, and it simply means favor, God's favor or kindness. And the first person to uh, be be stated as having been the recipient of god's grace he's not clearly Adam and Eve were recipients of god's grace, and many others Methuselah and others Enoch were recipients of god's grace, but this is the first time it's specifically mentioned in genesis uh, six eight and it's after the description of the sons of God, which were the demons who took on human flesh and took human wives and then they uh, produced an offspring called the Nephilim, which were a half man, half angel sort of giant or monster or something that came along, and so the basis for all the various myths about uh, gods coming down and taking wives or raping women. And their offspring were he, uh, the, these ancient heroes like Hercules and others. And so uh, this this. Uh, this is the background, and so in Genesis six six, the pre- two verses earlier, the response to this is that the Lord was sorry. That's a poor translation. It's an anthropopathism, which indicates that God, uh, God is having a change of direction in terms of His plan for man, or what appears to be a change of direction from our perspective, and so it's translated the Lord. It repented the Lord. That was the old King James. The Lord was sorry. That's a bad translation. The, the Lord determines uh, that he needs to take a course correction for the human race because they've been so evil, and he's grieved in his heart. And verse 7, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. I'll destroy uh, humanity, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. So apparently there were uh, some aspects of whatever the sexual sin was that also affected the animal kingdom. We don't know exactly, and the Scripture doesn't go into that at all. But God says, I'm not only going to uh, destroy the human race, I'm going to destroy every mammal, and that's what beast means, mammal, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I have made them, but... Verse eight, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He's going to wipe out everybody except for Noah and his wife and their children. so grace then becomes exemplified many times in the in the Old Testament, but when we get into the uh the New Testament, what we find is examples like what we've studied in ephesians two eight and nine that grace is an undeserved favor for those who deserve the absolute most extreme form of punishment. We also learn that grace is critical for spiritual growth, not just for salvation, but for spiritual growth as well. Grace orientation begins actually at salvation. That's when we learn that we can't impress God with our works, with our morality, with our personality, with our accomplishments, that God God is perfectly righteous and holy and just, and that there's no way that we can do anything to make ourselves compatible with God's righteousness and justice. We are born, as Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 states, alienated from the life of God. We're born spiritually dead. And so God has to provide a solution so that it is through his Son that he gives us life makes us alive again. And so that is the thrust of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6, that he makes us alive together in Christ. So then we come to the next element, that humility is the opposite of arrogance. Humility is one of those, those difficult words to define. You can state characteristics about humility, but it's very difficult to define a word. As a, as a teacher, uh, over the years, I've uh, had uh, uh, fun trying to teach students, teach pastors how to define things because most people think, well, I, I can define something. What they do is they describe it. Describing something isn't defining something. There's a difference. You can describe love, but you can't define it. You can look a definition up in the Webster's Dictionary, and it starts off an emotion. Wait a minute. The biblical view of love is not an emotion. So they, they, they fail completely. You can look up humility, and humility starts off by saying that it's the opposite of arrogance. It's defined by its opposite. In other words, that and that's just a description. You're not really defining... A humility per se so we can talk about humility in terms of some of its characteristics we can describe it but we can't really give a, pos- a positive sort of definition and there's a variety of at more abstract uh, nouns that are like that they're very difficult to define we can only describe them and humility usually starts off with the opposite it's not arrogance in romans twelve three Paul says, "For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think that's that's the closest you get to a definition in scripture. Don't be impressed with yourself, don't think that you are uh the answer to every problem. don't think that you are the best at everything." Uh, think objectively about yourself, and that's uh, uh, the word that comes up in the in the next line. But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one, and that word for soberly was a Greek word, sophrosune, which has to do with thinking in reality, thinking objectively. Uh, about a situation it doesn 't think sober doesn 't mean sober in the sense of the absence of the influence of alcohol it it 's the absence of things that that c- d- distort reality, the absence of things that that um, divorce you from reality, so thinking soberly is to think objectively to think in terms of reality uh, to think in terms of how you are and not how you wish you were. So this is an aspect of of uh, of what we mean by by humility. It is also described in the scripture by the concept of being uh, obedient to authority. That's the next uh, next statement. Humility is often described as obedience to authority, and here we have an example in the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians two eight. Now Philippians two eight is found in a section of Philippians in the first four verses of Philippians two. There's the challenge to be humble, okay, to not to think more highly of yourself as to be of one mind, to be of the same view, to work together. That's the command to humility, and then you have an illustration of humility in Philippians two five through eleven and where the example is Jesus Christ. And in verse 8 we read that Christ, it's talking about Christ being found in appearance as a man, that is, he adds hum, humanity to his deity, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. So humility is obedience to an authority. Now what we learn from looking at other passages as even when that uh, the the that authority is not doing what you think they ought to do. Now, I'm not saying that that authority is doing something wrong. There are certain situations when authority is wrong, they're disobedient to God's word telling you to do something that's in violation of God's word. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about the fact that you're at work And you have a boss, and that boss wants you to do something, wants it done a certain way, and you think he is completely out of line and has no idea what he's talking about. And that can happen a lot. In in the military, this probably happens a lot. Stories I've heard from second lieutenants who are just wet behind the ears, and they've just gotten their commission. And yes, they aren't in authority over a master sergeant or a first sergeant or a sergeant major but usually the master sergeant sergeant major's been in in the army for maybe 15 or 20 years has a whole lot more experience than this fresh out of college newly commissioned second lieutenant and that second lieutenant better develop some humility very quickly and listen to his first sergeant listen to his the master sergeant so that he can learn from them and uh, and and do what they say. But a lot of times you'll find somebody who's young, and they don't know what they're doing, and they are in authority, and they say, I want you to do it a certain way, and you're under their authority, and so you have to go along with it, and you have to have the right attitude. Now, Jesus, of course, is under the authority of God, and he is going to be obedient but he's to God, but he's also going to be obedient to the unjust rulers the Romans and the Jews, both of which are unjustly punishing him. Uh, he committed no crime worthy of death. He committed no crime at all. He was absolutely sinless and absolutely perfect, but they hated him because of who he was. They hated him because of his challenge uh, to, the, to their, the way the Pharisees taught what the scriptures meant, and so they were they were going to crucify him. And Jesus just could have spoken a word or thought a word, and a million angels would have wiped out all of those Pharisees and all of the Romans in less than a heartbeat, but he is obedient even to unjust authority to the point of death. And there's an important lesson there for what, what uh, grace orientation is. It involves... Uh, genuine humility. We have another example in the life of David. So we see David learning about grace when he is a young man. We see him learning about uh, learning about trusting God as a young man. After the episode with Goliath, he's, he's brought to court to uh, be an aid to Saul, but Saul then gets jealous of him, and David is constantly trying to to protect himself, but he doesn't react to the authority of, of Saul. So his grace orientation is being tested. And then we get to two episodes in 1 Samuel. Now you don't need to turn to 1 Samuel 24. I'll just summarize that. But turn, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 26. We'll spend a little time there as background to what we're doing in, in uh, 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 24, 6. David is is with his men, and he is in a cave in En-Gedi. Now, some of you have been with me in Israel. We've gone to En-Gedi. We've never walked up to what the traditional cave is, but there's a number of caves in that particular area. And so David and his men are hiding in a cave. And David has, th- I mean, excuse me, Saul has 3,000 Choice men of Israel, and they're searching for David. So David and his men go back and they hide back in a cave. Saul decides he needs to use the cave as his outhouse or restroom, and he goes back in there, and uh, and David cuts cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. What's so interesting is that David gets. Just overwhelmed by how irresponsible that was. He just cutting his intention was probably I'm going to cut off this robe and just show Saul that I had I could have easily killed him. He was right there. I could have cut cut his throat as easily as cutting his robe, and yet what happens afterwards uh, is that that he becomes very upset about this. And in verse 5, we read, Now, it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Now, this is authority orientation. Authority orientation isn't just saying, okay, I'm going to do what you want me to do. Authority orientation is, is not even having a hint of disrespect, not even a suggestion of disrespect or grumbling or complaining and David is convicted because he cuts off the corner of saul 's robe and he feels so bad about that as a violation of authority orientation he is it was such a uh, it was a, an act of disrespect for the authority of of saul now that 's important for background to what we 're seeing with the Absalom revolt. Absalom is rebelling against his father, the king, who, who, although he has personally sinned and he has been involved in some injustice when it comes to conspiring to have Uriah killed and the murder of Uriah, yet essentially David is, is a, the best king Israel ever had, so much better than Saul, and yet Absalom is going to lead this conspiracy and revolt against, uh, against Saul. And so David, after he becomes convicted about cutting off the corner of Saul's robe, says to his men in verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master. What's the, this thing? It's not killing him. It's cutting off the corner of his robe. Do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. This is authority orientation. God puts that person in authority over you, then unless they're uh, they're violating company policy, unless they're violating the law, unless there's some other objective violation, then you, we have to learn to submit to people. I, I never understood this or I had a hard time understanding it when I was a teenager. I would hear people say, "You can't learn to be a good leader unless you first are a good follower." And what that meant was if you don't learn authority orientation, you'll never learn to be a good leader and learn to exercise authority well. And that's exactly what's going on here. David understands that aspect of authority orientation. So David restrained his servants with these words. What did they want to do? They wanted to kill Saul. And he did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Now turn over to chapter 26. In chapter 20, 26, we have a second episode where David has the opportunity to take uh, take Saul's life. Saul is encamped um, in the wilderness of Ziph, and we look down in verse 3, and uh, Saul is chasing David through through the desert. David is uh, finds out where they're camped, and he comes to where Saul's encamped. He saw, sees where Saul is sleeping. And he's going to sneak into the camp. And listen to what happens when we come to verse... Well, I'll put verse 5 up here. That's the framework. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Avner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. Then, I didn't want to put the whole passage up here. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah the brother of Joab. Where are we going to run into Abishai? Right here in this episode with Shemai in 2 Samuel 16. Because it's Abishai again who when Shemai comes along and he is insulting David and he's throwing stones at all of the, the warriors and he's cursing david it's this same abishai that comes up and says david just cut his head off i I got my sword here i'll just take it off right here and we'll we'll end it right here this is the same same individual and he he's always out of line he's always in arrogance and he always wants to use violence to solve the situation so he's one of uh, david's commanders uh, part of his mighty men And and, uh, David says, who's going to go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai volunteers. So they go down to the people at night, sneak into the camp, and Saul is sleeping there with his spear stuck in the ground by his head, and Abner and the people are all around him. And then Abishai says, look, you know, the voice of human viewpoint. You can take him out. God's put him in your hand. Isn't this great? You've got his spear. He's right there. All you got to do is grab the spear and do it. What great rationalization. And yet David says to Absalom, don't destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And so again, we see David grace orientation. He's oriented to authority. He's oriented to to Saul as the authority, and he says in verse eleven, "The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed." But then he said, "Okay, let's just take the jug, uh, by his jug of water and the spear, and then we'll go." And then later on, they're going to uh, he's going to show Saul that he could have taken his life. Okay, so that's our understanding that that grace orientation is understanding authority, whether the authority is, in your opinion, right or wrong. It's orientation to that authority all the way up the chain of command to the president of the United States. And we've had a number of presidents who personally we may not have much respect for, but as long as they're in the office of president, we have to show respect for the office of president. And we need to take that, I think, a lot more seriously than a lot of people do. In our country, we can be critical of those who are in authority, but we have to be careful how we are critical of those because the Scripture makes it very plain that we're not even supposed to curse a king and we're not even supposed to to revile a king. Now, those are the two different words. We'll see the passage eventually, but those are the two different words that are used in Scripture for cursing that we have in the Abrahamic covenant where it says, Uh, Those who uh, bless Israel, I bless. Those who curse Israel, I I will curse. And as I've taught you many times, those who curse Israel, that is the word khalel. Those who treat Israel with disrespect, those who revile. That's what the uh, passage in Exodus says, that you shouldn't revile or curse a king. So you shouldn't treat a king with disrespect. You shouldn't revile whether you like him or you don't like him, whether he's right or whether he's wrong. And you shouldn't curse him. That is a much stronger statement. So we have a lot of people who do this all the time, Christians, non-Christians, whoever the president's been, because we live in an antinomian society. Now, 40 years ago, we were coming out of a legalistic society, and so you would emphasize different things. But in an antinomian society, we live with Christians and non-Christians who no longer have a respect for authority. It's, it, I've taught this for years. It's judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. ultimately, i 'm going to do what I want to do the way I want to do it when I want to do it, and that is just flies in the face of scripture it 's the tyranny of relativism that has come to play everybody's a god in their own eyes, and then that relativistic morality becomes uh, the God of this age so this is um, this is what we have to learn is authority orientation to respect those in the office, even if personally. Their behavior, their beliefs, their policies, their actions may not be worthy worthy of respect. That applies to abusive husbands, abusive spouses. That ab- applies to abusive children, uh, to abusive bosses. And there are other ways that a believer is to handle it. It's not to say that they get a, get uh, get away with it. That's not the the only other option. But we are not to treat them, we're not to lower ourselves to their level. We do not fight sin with sin. We fight sin with the word of God, trusting in God, trusting in his word. Now another category that, that we see in grace is gratitude. Grace, the English word grace, comes from the Latin word for For grace, the translation used in the Latin Bible for the Greek word charis is gratia. And we derive the English word gratitude from that same word. So somebody who is grace-oriented is grateful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Ephesians 5.20 says, Giving thanks always for... For all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I didn't take the time to go through and list the dozens and dozens of verses, we've gone over so many Psalms, where David expresses his thankfulness to God even in the midst of his uh, calling out to God because of the crisis that he is in. Grace orientation necessitates. Gratitude, gratitude to God, that no matter how bad it might be that that God is in control and we are to be thankful for God for all that He has given us. Gratitude then leads to teachability and growth second peter three eighteen We have to grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, so we 're constantly growing we 're constantly learning we better not ever reach a point in our age range where we get older and say well i'm just tired of learning we're going to be learning for eternity that's just your sin nature talking we need to be studying the bible more and more and more as we get older because we're going to get a test real soon when either the rapture comes or we die and we're face to face with the lord at the judgment seat of christ we have to have teachability that's part of humility learning responding to correction Uh, Hearing that, that, yes, we've done this wrong or we've done that wrong, and the Word of God is going to stomp on our toes. That's called reproving, and correction is going to tell us how to straighten it out. The fifth element is that we must learn God's grace is sufficient in every situation, that no matter what the difficulty is, God is going to supply what we need freely and abundantly. And 2 Corinthians 12 is the well-known episode where Paul has some sort of problem which he identifies as a thorn in the flesh. But he also defines it as an angelos, an angel of Satan. So there's something uh, demonic happening behind it. Uh, A few verses after 12.9 seems to indicate that this is the hostile reaction that he gets. He's the most brilliant man in the world with the most incredible testimony in all of history, the most brilliant theological mind in history, and yet people are rejecting him over and over and over again. They're stoning him. They're arresting him. Uh, he's being th- uh, washed overboard as he's b- b- on shipboard, on and all these things that happen, put into prison, put into jail, thrown into uh, the Colosseum with lions, uh, not the Colosseum in Rome, but Others, uh, along the way, we, we aren't given the details. And when he prays that God would just take this demon out, you know, quit letting this guy bother me all the time. I, I, I've got more important work to do. God says, I'm not going to do it. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul learns from that lesson that therefore I would rather boast in my weaknesses and the power of, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So we're going to stop here because this is an analysis of what we mean. We say David is humble. David has learned his lesson. He's grace-oriented in the way he's going to respond to Shimei, And then we see the contrast. Shemmai is arrogant. Absalom is arrogant. And we're going to come back and talk about that. Uh, next week on Tuesday night, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your Word. We know all of us are convicted over the fact that we are so proud, uh, we are full of pride we 're full of arrogance, and yet we know that that you have loved us despite all of that because of your objectivity, and you have given us not only salvation but you are working in our lives through God the Holy Spirit and through your word to challenge us, to transform us, and to uh, knock off those rough edges of that self-absorbed arrogance and to work at conforming us to the character of Christ, to demonstrate humility, to demonstrate love, to demonstrate grace to those around us. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have studied, that you would help us to see objectively into the areas of uh, pride in our own lives, that we may use your word and the Holy Spirit to deal with these issues. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.